Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. And with me today is Mr. J.J. Mulligan Sepulveda. He is an attorney, an immigration lawyer, and the book is No Human is Illegal, an attorney on the front lines of the immigration law. No Human is Illegal. Great title. Uh, um, J.J., welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Uh, you write in the introduction to this book, uh, with Trump as president, the immigrant experience has expanded such that the question of confinement and deportation now hangs over every one of the immigrants like a guillotine. And you wrote this book so people would know what it's like on the front lines. And each chapter in this is like a chapter in your law as an immigration attorney um, with all the twists and turns of bureaucratic legal options. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great story, but there's also a lot of human suffering going on in yeah, I, I mean, I wrote it as a memoir because it was the, the story I knew best was telling it through my own eyes. But I think it, the idea was to to show a bit more of the the immigrant experience to this country and the work that we do as immigration lawyers, um, which has become much more difficult in the last two years, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Now, that that's one of the things that I want to point to. There are immigration attorneys, obviously, but the courts have ruled that. In immigration cases, you don't necessarily have a public defender because it's not punishment to be deported. It's, uh, and so, uh, if there are attorneys, it's through the grace of some legal aid or nonprofit that there is an attorney, uh, representing the various people seeking refuge or immigration rights. That's right. Yeah. The, the immigration law statute specifically says that um, immigrants are allowed the privilege of representation, that's a quote, um, and then the per- there's a parenthesis right after that that says that, but at no expense to the government. And so the government won't fund any um, support for immigrants to, to go after and find an attorney. And we're talking oftentimes the kids I work with are, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, and they have to go out and find their own attorney, um, sometimes on their own, sometimes with family support, but it's, it can be really, really a difficult experience. But there's been studies that show that if, if you have an attorney, you're six or seven times more likely to be successful on your case as you are without an attorney. And so having that representation can really be determinative. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's start with PASA, because that was an interesting part of your, your uh, activities in, in New York. Uh, the CASA was a, a, a place that had been set up with two apartments sort of remodeled to, to operate uh, to help people with their cases. Yeah, so I worked at a nonprofit, a wonderful nonprofit that's still active called Atlas DIY in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And we had, like most nonprofits, we, we had um, minimal funding, um, big heart, obviously, but minimal funding. And so we our office was in two separate apartments, which we'd kind of made into to one office. And I write about this in the book. On one side, we had sort of the programming section where we provided support to people trying to get into college or counseling or all these other issues. And then on the other side, we had the legal team, um, which is where we we take on um, immigration cases for youth. We would only work with youth at at Atlas DIY. And then the cost area you're talking about was sort of this safe space where where people could come after school or or to meet with us and and just be free of 
you know, immigration officials chasing after them or, or school or responsibilities or anything. And so it was, it was really important to, to have that space for people. And I know there's other nonprofits that do the same. Mm-hmm. And at some point in, in describing that, you mentioned that USCIS, the Immigration Service, in their mission statement, reminds us that we're a nation of immigrants. That's kind of ironic at this point. Well, they, they took it out, I think, in, in the last six months. They took that out of their mission statement. So that's that's more, that's less ironic, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, now, part of your story is that your mother was an immigrant from Chile. And I, I think it's important to note that, you know, the United States has created some of its own issues, especially during the Cold War, uh, with regard to Central and South America, because they would replace, or they would help overthrow socialist and communist leaders in favor of a, a right-wing dictator that was more amenable to the interests of, the, of politics and economics of the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. Um, and she was a part of that time when uh, Salvador Allende overthrew Pinochet and for a time tried to stay in Chile, but at some point felt like she had to leave because they were they were killing people in the streets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the Pinochet... Um government, the dictatorship was completely funded, or not completely funded, but definitely supported by the United States government um, and the Nixon administration. And um, a lot of that didn't come out till later, but it was it was definitely a, a dark irony that my mother ended up in the United States when the country that um, sort of forced her to leave had such a heavy hand in, in her having to leave Chile, and she ended up here. Um, but then there's also, you know, asylum laws, we know it today, didn't really come to fruition until the 1980s, until 1980 with the Refugee Act. Before that, there wasn't a uniform asylum process. And so the United States would only recognize certain countries um, because of geopolitical concerns. So there was Cubans that could come, obviously, and then some Vietnamese um, after the Vietnam War could also come to the U.S. But people like my mother who were fleeing the Pinochet regime probably wouldn't have qualified for asylum because the U.S. was supportive of that regime and they didn't want to recognize that things were that bad in that country. And the, the, the same happened in the in the 80s and 90s, and they had to do a class action litigation because people coming from Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, where the U.S. was upholding these right-wing dictatorships who were torturing and killing people, um, were coming to the U.S. and applying for asylum, and 99.9% of them were getting denied because if the U.S. accepted them um, and approved their asylum, it was basically an admission that things in their countries were really horrible, where their public statements were the exact opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I like the, the turn of phrase because uh, uh, people do not necessarily come to the U.S. seeking a better life, often just to escape a worse one. Yeah, I think that there's there's this idea that um, everyone that comes to the U.S. is just seeking a better, quote-unquote, better life, and that everyone mm-hmm. is, is just looking for jobs and to, to live off welfare, as, as, the, as the right would say. But it's, it's not always the case. People are fleeing desperation. Um, you, you, we talk about some of the journeys it takes to get here, and, and I write about the European Union as well, crossing the Mediterranean Sea, crossing these horrible stretches of desert because we've built walls in certain areas to push people into the harshest places of the desert coming into the U.S. These are very, very dangerous journeys, and so to undertake them and risk death, there must be something really bad pushing you as opposed to pulling you to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought you, you traced some of the history of the laws that were passed through the years and uh, during the Johnson era 
65, I think, there was an immigration law to remove uh, what Hebrew Humphrey said to remove all elements of second-class citizenship for immigrants, but that didn't quite work out. Uh, and then uh, you mentioned the IIR, IRA, the Illegal Immigrant Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, uh, which is following the current deportation system. Uh, there's not much humanity in that but, uh, because it, no. it basically sets up deportation as the solution for our problems with immigration. Absolutely, yeah, and that, and that strangely was the last time the immigration laws have been really updated, and so that's a lot of what was passed in 1996 um, is, is what's still on the books, and so people that have a green card or, or lawful permanent residence, any any number of minimal, minimal crimes can get them put into deportation proceedings, even if they went through the whole process and quote-unquote stood in line. There's all kinds of ways that they can now fall into this deportation apparatus, and that law was also... Um, when we started really funding this, this border militarization, which really took off after the 9-11 attacks here in the U.S. in 2001-2002. Well, let's, let's talk briefly about your visit to, to, the, uh, to the Texas border, because you, you got to see firsthand uh, detainees in those uh, so-called family detention centers. Carn City was one. Uh, talk about your experience there, because uh, first of all, you, you were... It was a trial by fire. You you came down there to be an intern. And you had to learn quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was already practicing law in, in New York City as an immigration lawyer at, at Atlas DIY at a nonprofit, and then through the Immigrant Justice Corps Fellowship, we we went on rotations along the border because it, at that time was the Obama administration was was trying to say that mothers and children um, children have a certain right under the Flores Settlement Agreement to um, least restrictive settings to be held in least restrictive settings and to license facilities, which none of the facilities along the border are licensed to hold kids. And the Obama administration was holding parents and children for six, seven, eight months, even up to a year in some of the cases I saw. And this was in complete violation of that settlement. And then they weren't getting any as much representation as they could. You know, this was before the Trump administration when funding sort of has flown into a lot of these border uh, nonprofits. There's Raices, who has gotten a lot of funding, and other organizations that have really gotten funding. But back then, it was pretty minimal the amount of representation that these mothers and children were getting. And at the time when I went down there was it was right after my my first daughter had been born, and so my my wife and daughter stayed behind in New York, and I was working with these mothers and children. It was really uh, an, an affecting time in my life for sure, and and seeing what these people were going through, and and considering my own wife and child having to go through those things if they if they were there is, is very difficult. Mm-hmm. You have a vivid description of those uh, those centers, which operate more like prisons than family uh, detention areas, and the, uh, how cold it was. There are there are places there that are referred to as yaleras because they're so cold. And, and that just that that struck me because I didn't I didn't know about that. Yeah, when when people first arrive, they're usually, especially the youth, they're they're put in hileras, and they're, by law they're not supposed to be there for more than seventy two hours. But they're basically um, these rooms, these ice cold rooms with no beds, with nothing, and, and the kids are just there until they're transferred to a detention facility. And and you're absolutely right, they they are jails more than anything. They they give them different names, you know, residential center, residential treatment facility, all these other names to make it sound like, you know, it's a, it's a cousin of the YMCA, when in reality, they're just absolutely prisons. 
and, and the process there for asylum is uh, is less than than pleasant for most. Uh, you, you talk about the CFIs and the RFIs, the credible fear interviews and the reasonable fear interviews by asylum officers who uh, are denying these folks refuge because they don't have a good enough case, even though the conditions they live under in usually in Central America in particular uh, are uh, frightening. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the immigration law uh, are written, the humanitarian part of the law is written so that something bad has to have happened to you, but then you need to make sure it's the right bad thing, right? So not every um, rape, not every gang violence is, is, is something that people can get asylum for, and that's, and that's a, an ugly, ugly quirk in the law, and it's really unfortunate. But along the border, there's also a different process for asylum than on the interior, and that's for people that first arrive, they go through this credible fear interview where they're in a room alone with an asylum officer, a stranger, and they have to tell this, usually it's a man, um, about their worst experiences of, of what they've been through um, upon arrival, pretty much. And from what we know about psychological trauma, when people have gone through some awful, awful things, their memory doesn't work as it does with a normal situation. They, they suppress it, they mix it up, and so their credibility is often called into um, question based on these psychological traumas. And so if they can't uh, explain exactly what happened, then it could be very difficult for them to win their case. And even if they do get a, a positive, credible fear interview, that doesn't mean they're going to get asylum. It just means they'll be released from detention into the interior of the United States with the opportunity to pursue asylum in an immigration court wherever they move to. And, and you mentioned that in, in, in your experience in Texas, the judges often aside with the asylum officer, the judges who render the final uh, decision. Right. They're on the same side. And so if, if, an, if, if you go in with a case and you tell a judge, no, the asylum officer wrote this down wrong, um, this, this woman actually suffered in this way, as opposed to what was written down in the official asylum officer's record, um, it's very difficult for the judge to convince the judge that the asylum officer was wrong, or um, by by telling a different story, the judge will say, "Well, your your client is not credible. Then I don't believe her story." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and your first case there was a mom and daughter um, who had who had escaped uh, horrific conditions in Guerrero, uh, but ultimately they were denied and sent to Nuevo Laredo. And I, I found it poignant that you mentioned that the official you asked about when you asked about them said they had been shipped and that sort of dehumanizes the, the immigrants even more like a package of EPS. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the that's the phrases they use. They've been shipped or or they've been handled or, or all these other words. Um that that they're pretty much just packages in the way in the parlance that the immigration official use. But in that case that I write about in the book was was really difficult because as you know Guerrero's in in the southern part of Mexico, and so when you have a Mexican client, um, the U.S. just deports them to Mexico. There's no, there's nothing that says that they have to go back to the state they were from. And so, if if you imagine a, a U.S. citizen, for example, um, moving to Canada um, from Los Angeles or or from Texas, and they're deported from Canada, it's like the Canadian officials dropping them off in Michigan, right, and saying, "Well, you're home now," you know. Mm -hmm. You talk briefly about some other things in the book, and we don't have a lot of time left, but uh, you talk briefly about being at JFK Airport and, and the, uh, the, how the travel ban affected so many people. 
Um, but pretty quickly after the travel ban was enacted, you had won a grant and were going to go study uh, how to handle migration in, in Europe. And there's a vivid description of this, this Spanish uh, piece of property in, in, in Africa called Melilla. And uh, there's a lot of good insights in there, but just talk a little bit about the differences between the way they handle immigrants, uh, especially young adolescents who are not in prison so much. Yeah, so, so Melilla is uh, a part of Spain. It's called an autonomous city, and it's on the northern coast of Africa, right off the, the edge of Morocco. And it's it's interesting because it's it's an incredible example of, of why a border wall doesn't work, because it's got these 20-foot-high fences with concertina wire all along its seven-mile border. It's completely separated from Morocco with this border fence. And even in that small amount of space, it, it doesn't work. There's still people climb over the fence and find other ways to get in. And so that's something that I think it's really important to, to think about and look at as an example when we try and when the U.S., the Trump administration is trying to get all this funding for the border wall. As far as immigrant youth, Spanish law has it that um, people under 18 cannot be detained. And so it's a juxtaposition with the U.S. when they're in these secure um, jail-like settings and severely mistreated by the guards, and they're given psychotropic meds without parental consent, they're denied water, all these issues. And then in Spain, um, they're pretty much just reception centers, right? So the, the youth goes there, um, spends the day there, they can leave whenever they want, they're not locked in there. Um, and so I think that's that's really powerful to think about. It's, it's not the, the best way to, to, to treat youth because um, letting a youth just wander the streets on his own um, at certain times of the day isn't isn't the safest, but it's also important that they're not detained and treated um, so differently as criminals. As, as I spoke with one of the, the activists in Melilla, he told me, um, when you go back to the U.S., at the very least, tell them to treat children like children. And I think that's the most important thing I took from my experience there. That's great. There's a conversation there that I do want to bring up because of what's going on in the U.S. today uh, with Jose. You, uh, he, he talks about um, knowing about the separation of kids from their parents, and we now know that there were thousands more than were originally reported. But you describe uh, them telling parents that they're taking the kid to the doctor or uh, for, for a bath, and then they separate them from the parents. They deport the parents, and they treat them like a, un, un, unaccompanied minors. And I didn't know that that, that was the way um, that so many children got separated. Right. Yeah. And under the law, if, if you arrive uh, under 18 and you're unaccompanied by a parent, um, you have these certain protections. You go into certain facilities that are different. And so that's what they were doing when these kids were, even though they're arriving with their parents, because the parents had gone into federal custody with the U.S. Marshals, they were treating them as unaccompanied minors. And in practice, they were becoming orphans. And that was different than what goes on in Spain, but also it was really shocking to speak with um, Jose about that and, and, and so on. And, and the other so, thing, so last, last week there was a, a document that was leaked um, that the Trump administration had a policy of separating parents from kids in order to supposedly deter more people from coming. I know that they testified and they said all over the media that there was no policy. But last week there was a leaked document that clearly states that there was a policy and there was the idea was to deter families from coming. Mm -hmm. and, and another thing that, that happens there at a, at a, for those seeking refuge 
uh, is that they're told no applications are being taken today and they sleep on the bridge and they wait for another day and they're told no applications are being taken. And so they wind up crossing somewhere else and then they get arrested and then they go through the process of being uh, treated like undocumented, so illegally entering the country. Yes, and, and the Trump administration actually had created a policy that um, people, after they were so desperate trying to wait in and do things right and go through the point of entry, when they were going into, um, quote-unquote, illegally in another place that wasn't a port of entry, the Trump administration created a policy that if they did that, they could not apply for asylum. And luckily, the, the ACLU had filed a lawsuit, and the, and the judge issued an injunction, so that's not going forward. You can still apply for asylum, even if you're stopped at a port of entry. Mm-hmm. And we also have the issue of reuniting toddlers who don't know their parents' names. They know mama and papa, but they can't say who their parents are. And so the administration's created a mess and no one knows how to clean up. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what I write about in the book is that we, we have no idea um, how to reunite these kids. And the Trump administration, uh, absurdly, in, in one of the lawsuits that was filed in San Diego to stop this family separation, had, had said, well, maybe the nonprofit should be in charge of separating kids, you know, like a, like a spoiled kid that doesn't want to clean up their mess, right? Oh, boy. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. This is a great read, and I think it's really relevant to our listeners uh, in the Rio Grande Valley in particular. Uh, the book is No Human is Illegal, an Attorney on the Front Lines of the Immigration War. The author is J.J. Mulligan Sepulveda. J.J., thanks so much for the interview. We appreciate your time, and uh, I appreciate the work you've done on this memoir. Thank you, John. I thank you for having me on. Thank you. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I thank you for listening. If you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can also catch us on YouTube at our channel, which is Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening. Make it a great day.